I prayed, we're uh, in the middle of a little, little, little mini-series here on joy. And uh, I, I think the best way for us to get started is to share with you a quote by one of the best preachers that ever lived. That's not an overstatement. A guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who lived back in the 1800s in London, England. And Spurgeon was such an amazing preacher that the uh, main newspaper in London would publish his sermons every Monday morning. Can you imagine if the Arizona Republic wanted to publish my sermons every Monday morning in the newspaper? Well, they did that with Spurgeon. And one day Spurgeon said this. He had such a great way with words. He said to Christians, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And when you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. <laughs> I submitted to you last week that Christians today stink at joy. You know what that quote just told us? Is that Spurgeon thought the same thing 150 years ago. Times never change. Here's what we're dealing with in this little mini-series that we're in. And that is, why is it that sober, responsible, Bible-believing Christians tend to not be the most joyful people on planet Earth? Have you ever asked that question and some of you who are new to this right now are saying, well, I'm not sure that's true. I can settle this right now. Ask your neighbor. Ask your coworker. Ask anybody that rubs shoulders with Christians who's not a Christian themselves and say, describe the Christian around you. And here's what you're going to find, because I've been doing this for years. They will give some wonderful descriptions of the Christians they know. They will say things like this. Boy, that guy is serious and intense and conviction-oriented and truthful and sacrificial and involved. All good traits. There's only one problem. You'll hardly ever hear joyful. Try it this week. The world doesn't even use the word joy much, but they use the word happiness. You'll never hear them say, man, is that dude happy. I mean, they're always smiling. They're always up. There's like a bounce in their step. We don't describe Christians that way today, and yet there's a problem because the Bible, which is our truth source, elevates joy, did you know this, to the number two position in its listing of the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, the sign that God lives in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Jesus told us, as we saw last week, that he wants his followers to have his joy in them so that it can be evident for all to see. So the question becomes, if you're willing to own this at all with me today, is why do Christians stink at joy? And I shared with you last week in this series, we're going to note four things. We noted two of them last week. Real quick review. Last week we said the reason that Christians stink at joy is because we don't realize the absolute importance God places on joy. In other words, we just noted that, that fruit of the Spirit, Jesus wants to have, to have joy. We don't realize its importance. And then we ended last week by noting that we don't know what we are aiming for when it comes to joy. In other words, the world that we live in doesn't make a distinction between joy and happiness. The Bible does. It tells us that happiness is simply that jolt of pleasure that you get when you eat at Chick-fil-A or when you're watching a favorite movie or something like that or a sports game. It's, it's hedonay. It's pleasure. But the word for joy is the word kara in the scriptures. And joy we defined as this, that it's a longing and a desire built upon hope. 
I gave you three scriptures last week that cement this. John 16, where Jesus talks about how when a woman is in labor and then gives birth to a child, there is joy in her. And every one of you ladies who have given birth can relate to this. And the reason that there's joy is because you have an anticipation, a longing, a desire for all that this child will be in your life. You're in dream mode, and there's a feeling of joy inside of you. And then I gave you a second example from John 8 where Jesus said that Abraham longed, he thirsted to see the coming of the Messiah. And that longing and that thirst conjured up a feeling of joy in him, built upon hope. And then I told you about Jesus from Hebrews 12 where Jesus says that he's he's even as he anticipated the cross, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross knowing that he would bring forgiveness to humankind and be reunited with the Father in heaven. Are you starting to see? Joy is whenever you and I as Christians have this anticipation, this longing, this thirst that God is in the house and that God is going to do something in our lives because he is God and there's hope now on the horizon and that feeling that you get at that very moment, and many of us have experienced that, is joy. That's where we ended last week. Now, with this definition in tow, what I want to do in our time remaining today is share with you two additional reasons that Christians stink at joy. Two things that we're going to turn into positives very quickly as to what we can do in our lives to get more joy. So here is the third reason we stink at joy, and it's the reason that that definition I gave you is so important. And that is that we have forgotten the power of hope. We have forgotten the power and role of hope. In other words, track the logic here, gang. If joy is a feeling and it is, that conjures up this longing and desire that is built upon hope of all that God is and is going to do, then could it be that the reason many Christians lack joy is that they have a hope deficit in their lives? And I think so. Don't miss this. Joy and hope go together. Joy is built upon hope. And without hope, you're going to have trouble finding joy. Picture hope as the foundation of a house, and joy is the house that you build. Without the foundation, the house isn't going to stand. And the reason that you and I know that this is true is because if I was having a cup of coffee with you today, and I looked you in the eye and said, have you ever met a Christian who is joyful and has no hope? What would you say? Of course not. Every person that has hope by definition has, or every person has joy by definition has hope in their lives because the very definition of joy is built upon hope. So it only makes sense that Christians who struggle with joy might want to gauge their level of daily hope in their lives. So let's talk very briefly today, somewhat briefly, about hope. And to do so, I want to tell you a story. And it's a true story found tucked away in the annals of the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Genesis. And it's the story of Abraham. And some of you might have heard this story before. Abraham lived thousands of years ago in Old Testament times. 
And he has a very unique story because he was called by God at the age of 75 to leave his homeland called Haran to inherit a much better land that would eventually be called Israel. And when God called him, did I mention at the age of 75, to leave Haran and go out and find this other land, God promised he would be both the founder and the father of a new nation. Now let's pause right there in this story. Some of us blow by these details in the Bible like, yeah, 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 I guess that's true. Imagine if you were Abraham and you're living here in Scottsdale and you've developed your wonderful lifestyle here in Scottsdale or wherever you might live, and God taps you on the shoulder, did I mention at age 75, and says to you, I want you to leave your country, the United States, and go to another land, and you're going to become the founder and father of another land. What would you do if God said that to you? Some of you very spiritual people would say, I'd go. Liar. I think you'd wrestle with that. I think that you would wrestle with that. You'd say, is this really God speaking? And, you know, how can I trust him? And I'm old. Don't you want somebody young? Abraham didn't say any of that. As we all know, he went. So he left his homeland. He packed up all of his family and possessions. They had no kids. That's really important. He packed up all of his aunts and uncles and nephews, the whole family, and they headed out toward the land of Canaan. There was only one problem. When they got there, the land that God had promised them was filled with a people that were very numerous and powerful, aptly called the Canaanites. And so having no resources to take over this vast country, because it was just Abraham and his few relatives, he becomes a desert wanderer for 25 years, waiting for God to do something to fulfill this promise. Now, during this time that Abraham is wandering the desert, There were two problems that he woke up to every day when it came to his life. The first problem was, how can I be a founder of a nation already inhabited by this massive people? And yet he had to trust God on that one. The second one, though, was even more formidable. And that is, how can God make me the father of a new nation when I have no kids? Abraham, let's do the math, when he left Haran was 75 years. And then he wandered in the desert for 25 years. Any of you good at balancing your checkbook? 75 plus 25 is, carry the one, 100. Good. So Abraham by this time is 100 years old. Sarah is no spring chicken herself. Sarah was 65, his wife, when she left Haran with him. And again, 25 plus 65 is what? 90. So you got a guy who's 100 years old, you got a guy guy who's 90 years old, and God has promised they're going to have a kid. And he mentioned nothing about adoption, no in vitro fertilization. He says, you're going to have a natural kid. Now, again, we blow by this stuff as if it's commonplace. I looked it up this week. The Guinness World Book of Records for the oldest woman on file to ever have a natural childbirth, you can confirm this, is 59. The oldest woman to ever give birth, even with help in our modern technology, in vitro fertilization, is 66. You will find some websites that claim older women, but they are unverified. 
So even if that did happen, we've not been able to verify that. In our modern age, with all of our modern technology, the best we've been able to do is 59 naturally, 66 with a little bit of help, and Sarah's 90 years old, and God says, you're going to have a kid. And every time Abraham asked God about this, God said the same thing to him. He said, don't worry, just trust me. Now, pause there in the story right now. Abraham's in a real difficult spot, and it's a spot that I think many of us can relate to. Have any of you ever had the experience where you started off on the right foot only to encounter problems along the way? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Come on, lazy people, raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. It has. In other words, we've started off at a job or a marriage or with our parenting or with our money or with our retirement plans or even with our health, even with our walk with God, and we're walking and things are going great, and all of a sudden, boom, we hit some roadblock or some difficulty that seems absolutely insurmountable. And it's at that moment you begin to lose what? It's the topic before us right now, hope. And that's exactly where Abraham is, and you and I can relate to it. Now, with all of this backdrop, combined with the need that you and I have for hope in our lives, if we're ever going to find joy, look at what Romans 4.18, reflecting back on Abraham's life, says about him and hope. It says, in hope, against hope, Abraham believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. Uh, park for a second in front of this. It's a very poetic but very potent verse. In hope, that's the Greek word elpis, it means expectation, it means that you're, you're looking for something on the horizon that you hope will be true. In hope, against hope. What a wonderful way of saying it. The NIV just translates this against all hope. Not a bad translation, but I like this better. In hope, when there's no hope to be found, Abraham did what? Say this word with me. He believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. In other words, he kept on, he hung in there, he maintained the faith, even against all the opposing odds, even when his wife, do you remember what his wife did when he first told her she's going to get pregnant? What did she do? She laughed. And it wasn't because she had joy. She laughed. <laughs> Because she said, you're crazy, old man. Haven't you read the Guinness World Book of Records? <laughs> Nobody's going to have a kid at our age. And so they have all these opposing odds. And Abraham would have none of it. He maintained his hope. He maintained his faith. And as many of us know, eventually the story has a good ending. A 90-year-old lady has a baby. And what do they name him? Isaac. And Isaac in the Hebrew means what? Laughter. <laughs> Abraham named his kid after Sarah's sin and said, we're naming this kid laughter, Sarah. Don't ever laugh at God again. And so Abraham maintained his hope. And here's what I need you and I to wrestle with right now because this is so pertinent to our lives. How did he do that? I mean, it's one thing to say in hope against all hope. Jamie believed, and you know, he's that hero that's a lot easier said than done. How do you do that? How does Abraham, in the midst of all of these opposing factors, his decaying body, years with no results, no refuge or home, a land inhabited by a people much more numerous and powerful than him, how in the world 
did he engage in hope? And the reason is he was able to do this is because of the definition of what hope is. I've given this to you before, so this isn't new. But let's remind ourselves what hope is, because you can do this too. Hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. You're going to see this makes sense in a minute. Hope sees the unseen. Hope grabs by faith the promise of God given to you in your life, and it clings to it no matter what. And it says, I will not be bogged down with the crud right in front of me. I'm lifting my sights up, and I'm going to trust in him who I can't see, and I'm going to trust in him whose promises are yet unfulfilled. And as I do that, I'm keeping my eye on the ball. And when you do that, the Bible says by its very definition, you are engaging in hope. And that's precisely what Abraham did. Quickly notice with me that hope has two components to it. First, it's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances, right? I, I mean, hope involves this ability, and, and it sounds so simple, but it's so hard for you and I just to not get too focused on our problems and to look up instead of down at the things in front of us. Does that make any sense? I, uh, I, I'm amazed at how Abraham was able to do this. I, I told you his two biggest problems were the Canaanites and then a barren wife, right? Those are two big things. But, but when you read Genesis 12 through 19, you realize that those are just the tip of the iceberg. He had a lot of other problems, too, while he was wandering in the desert for 25 years. I mean, he had, he had kings that wanted to steal his wife. He, he found himself in the middle of a small war between nations he was visiting. He dealt with corrupt nations like Sodom and Gomorrah. They experienced a harsh famine during these 25 years. And then he saw his relatives taken into captivity. You see, the problem is, is that any of one of us might have gotten stopped dead in our tracks with any one of those problems, but Abraham didn't. And I would simply submit to you that the reason that he didn't is that he kept his eyes focused on the horizon instead of on the problems in front of him. Somebody asked me what this uh, prop was and guessed it right away. It wasn't too difficult. It's a basketball Sorry, it's a goofy-looking basketball. I asked Neil to get it for me, and this is what you, this is what you get. And so uh, I, uh, I, I obviously was never a great basketball player when I was young or even now. It has to do with being about five foot six. And when I was in, uh, you know, growing up in Chagrin Falls, everybody and their brother played basketball, and so did I. And I remember going out for the uh, eighth-grade basketball team, and I, I think the coaches just laughed. I, I didn't even get considered for it. And, and so in high school, as many of you know, I wrestled, and I, I did cross-country and track. And, uh, and eventually when I got to college, I was at a small little college in Michigan, and they had an intramural basketball league. And I actually found that by then, when I was in college, I could have made the eighth-grade basketball team. I mean, I'd, I, I had grown up a little bit and gotten much better, so I played intramurals for a few years in college. And I'll never forget one day, somebody gave me a tip that forever changed my jump shot. You sports people are going to love this. Even if you don't know sports, you're going to get this right away. And that's it. You know, he said to, to have a good jump shot, you obviously, if you're, if you're right-handed, you have your left hand here and your right hand here. Make sure you keep your, your arm tucked under you. You don't want it out like that. Keep it tucked under. And he said, Jamie, you know, when you shoot, you know, make sure you flick your wrist. Don't have your arms do all of it. And then he said this. And he said, I noticed that when you're shooting, 
The reason that you never get the ball into the basket is because when you're shooting, your eyes are on the ball. And I thought about that. I said, well, yeah, because you told me to keep my left arm in and this arm here and make sure I flick my wrist and I'm trying to make sure I get all of that right. And he said, yeah, you got to get all that right. But if you keep your eye on the ball right in front of you, this isn't baseball. He said, if you keep your eye on the ball, you have no idea where your body doesn't know exactly where you're trying to go. He said, when, when, when you go to shoot the basketball, keep your eye on the rim and, and you're going to have a much better success at getting the ball through there. And I thought, that's crazy. That's not going to work. And I'll never forget it. It's hard to almost communicate this experience. But I can remember the very first time I tried it. I wasn't a very good shot. And I did all the technique right. I kept my eye right on the rim. And I was only about three feet away. But I kept it right there. And I, I flicked it. And what did it do? It went in. And then I started to do free throws like that. And then I started to do jump shots like that. And I actually found I was only an average shooter, but I had a much better chance of getting the ball into the net if I kept my eye on that rim, not on the ball. See, I think life is that way. This ball represents our problems. And they're big, Neil, they're ugly, and they're right in front of us. And we tend to want to get this ball through the, the net or the rim of God's solutions. And yet God says the biggest problem you have is you're focused on the ball. <laughs> you're focused on your problematic marriage, your finances, your kids. And I mean, rightly so, you're focused on trying to fix them. But if you ever want God's help, he says, man, you got to tuck your right arm in. you got to flick your wrist and keep your eye on the horizon. Because only when you learn to look up are you actually going to find yourself having success when it comes to this thing called hope and even fixing your problems? As soon as we can look up beyond our circumstances, gang, hope begins to start to kick in. Now, notice with me, however, and we're going to move on right after this, but notice with me that we're looking up, and this is where hope becomes such a rich, rich thing, to that which is unseen. And some of you are saying, that doesn't make sense. How can you look up and see that which is unseen? Uh, let me explain this to you by showing you a scripture out of the book of Romans here. Uh, Romans 8, chapter 24. And this just cements the issue forever when it says this. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? Now, now what is the Bible saying there? It's telling us that hope by its very nature doesn't see the end because if it did, it wouldn't be called hope. It would be called surety. It would be called conviction. It would be called certainty. But the fact is, is that much of life is that we don't know what's on the horizon. But here's where hope kicks in. You ready for this? I'm going to lean forward and yell right now, okay? <laughs> We know who is on the horizon. Amen? Amen? So you don't know what's on the horizon, but you know who is on the horizon, and it's God. And so God says, look up, look to me. And by the way, we can't see God, and so hope is unseen there still. But we trust him, and we trust his promises. 
And so hope-filled people are people who look beyond their problems to that which is on the horizon, which is God himself. And like Abraham, they say, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to get a 90-year-old woman pregnant, but I trust that you can. I trust that you will. And my hope is set on you. And when you can learn to do that, when you can learn to trust God that way, hope is going to start to kick in into your life. And it all begins with knowing the promises in Scripture so that you're not hoping in stupid things. It begins by not trusting all the TV preachers who give you a false hope, that's for another sermon, of things that might not happen. So I'm not saying you have blind hope. You need to trust in the things that God has said. You need to know the Bible, know what his promises are and aren't, but when you understand that rightly and understand his promises, you can bank on these things, begin to trust them. Now watch this, even against all odds, even when things look bleak, you can trust him for his promises. You can trust him for his presence because he is good at that. And that's what hope is. And here's the point, gang. Here's where we've been leading all this morning. Once you begin to develop this kind of hope, anchored in God, anchored in his promises, not looking at the ball, but looking on the horizon, I promise you that joy is right around the corner. How do we know that? Because joy is a longing and desire anchored in God built upon his hope. And once you start to get hope, joy follows suit like a caboose on a train. They go together. And you're going to experience both of them together. And as I said last week, and this is really where it gets down to brass tacks, the most cool thing about this is that this is the kind of joy that you can have in the midst of difficult, even depressing times. Why have you been listening? Here's why. Because the joy that you get from hope is not tied to your circumstances. Amen? It's not tied to the ball. It's not tied to your kids who are doing stupid things. It's not tied to your job that you don't enjoy. It's not tied to your marriage that you're struggling with. Watch this. It's not even tied to your anxiety and depression, which is why when people ask me, can you have joy in the midst of anxiety and depression, only a Christian could say yes to that. Because your joy isn't tied to those fleshly things. Your joy is tied to him. And though he's on the horizon, and though he, his promises you are still waiting for, your joy is tied to that. A longing and a desire built upon the hope that you have in him. And you know what Jesus told us? No one can take that away from you. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Though there's weeping in the night, joy comes in the morning. And, and here's what we understand, folks. And that is that if, if Christians would just stop tying their hope to the things that the world does. You're saying, what are those? Here's my list. Your 401k, your up and down emotions, your health, your difficult relationships. <laughs> Most sadly, the American economy and Fox News, if we could stop tying our hope to those things, those aren't bad things. Don't send me an email on that. <laughs> it's just that we tie our hope to those things. You allow those things to affect your mood. How pathetic is that? If we could stop tying our hope to those things and tie our hope 
to him, you'd be a much more joyful person. I promise you. I, I didn't ask him if I could share this illustration, but he's been very public about his struggles, and so I think it's okay. But my hero here, and this is not just because he's one of my closest friends, but my hero here is Tom Schrader. Many of you know Tom. He's been a, a fixture in this valley for three or four decades. He was a commercial real estate agent who got saved in 1980 and never looked back. And he started a ministry here in the valley, uh, just Bible teaching and bars initially and other places, and it took off like a wildfire. And before you know it, hundreds were coming out in the 80s to hear Schrader teach. And one day somebody said, Schrader's got such a great way of putting things, he said, somebody said to him one day, why don't we sing songs, you know, at our Bible study? And he said, because it's not church. If you want to sing songs, go to church. This is a Bible study. He's kind of feisty. And then his wife said, why don't you start a church? And so in the early 90s, Schrader started uh, what was called then uh, East Valley Bible Church, and it grew to 4,000 people, very, very successful pastor. Eventually, Tom's wife got cancer, not eventually, but she got cancer, and, uh, and, and Tom reached his late 50s, and he just was so devoted to Susan, and so he, he pulled way back from the church, handed it off to some younger guys, and then Tom had some health problems, lupus, He's been very public about this. And at that point, Tom decided to hand off the whole kit and caboodle to these younger pastors. And if you ever wonder, is it worth taking a risk on younger pastors? <laughs> uh, Schrader's church went from one campus in Gilbert to now 10 campuses all throughout the valley. They've grown to over 6,000 people, and these young pastors are just hitting it out of the park. They're attracting kids their age. I call them kids, but they're in their 20s and 30s their age. It's one of the most successful millennial churches in the city right now. People from all over the nation come here to look at what they're doing. And as many of you know, Tom continued his teaching ministry up until last spring, and, uh, and, and he's had some significant health problems since then. It's basically affecting his heart. Again, he's been public about this. And since about last April, he's been fairly homebound uh, and, and, and trying to recover from some heart maladies while also battling lupus. And I visited him. I didn't visit him when I was gone. But every time I've been in, in town here, I visit him at least every week and, and, and say to him, Schrader, how you doing? And, and, and it's been very difficult. I won't, I won't kid you. I, every time I go to his house, he's in the same chair that I left him a week ago. And, and that's his life right now. And he's reading a lot of books and watching some television and entertaining visitors, but he, he's weak and trying to get stronger. And, uh, and, and he is recovering slowly. And he tells me that he misses the teaching. He misses the action. Some of you businessmen who retired or businesswomen who retired, you can get this. You, you miss being in the action of all of it. And yet when you get right down to it, when you spend a conversation with Tom, and it's hard to explain this to you guys, but he's just as joyful as he was when he was in the action. He has just as much contentedness as he did when he was riding the wave of East Valley Bible Church. His humor is the same. His personality is the same. His joy level is right up there. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is how? I mean, everything seemingly is being taken away from him. How has that happened? East... Stanley Jones was one of the great Methodist missionaries of the last generation or two, two generations ago. And E. Stanley Jones suffered a terrible stroke at the end of his life that left him paralyzed for two years. 
And he wrote in his memoirs these words, very powerful words. He said, the outer props have been stripped away. He said, but don't worry, the inner props are holding me up just fine. And see, that's what Schrader's experiencing now. Here's the good news, by the way, for those of you who've been tracking his Bible study. He has gotten strong enough that he's going to do one Bible study a week starting Wednesdays at 7 a.m. through Priority Living starting this September. So you can pray for him as he tries to to, to recover and and teach because he's such a phenomenal teacher. But here's what I know. Whether that happens or not, whether that comes to fruition or not, Tom's okay. And he's okay because his hope isn't anchored in these things. His hope is anchored in Jesus. His hope is anchored in God. Ultimately, and I know some of you don't like to think about this, but as you get older, you will. His hope is anchored where? In heaven. The ultimate eternity where there are no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain. Can you even imagine pure bliss in the presence of God? That's where our hope ultimately is found. And the only thing we have to be careful of is to not allow the world and its pleasures to rob us of our joy. Because if you fall in love with your 401k, if you fall in love with reruns of NCIS, if you fall in love with Chick-fil-A or whatever your favorite restaurant is, if you fall in love with all the things, if you fall in love with your country club, all the things that this world has to offer, you will not have the joy God wants you to. Because joy is not found there It's found in him. Now, we have four minutes left, and and I want to share our final point with you, the final reason Christians stink at joy. And I have almost no time to cover it, but the reason that I need to share it, as I've said to you guys so often, is because if I don't, it will give some of you mild anxiety on the lack of closure when it comes to all four points. But I will warn you that this last point is really hard-hitting, and you're going to resist it, Because it sounds so simple, but it's true, I promise you, and it's this. The reason Christians stink at joy is because we are not close enough to God. And you're saying, can it be that simple? Are you telling me that every time I don't have joy, it's because I'm not close to God? What's the answer to that? Yes. I had a bad week this week, gang. I'm not going to bore you with the details. It wasn't a terrible week. It was just a stressful week. I got stuff going on here at the church. I haven't been gone for two months, and you say you deserve it. You're right. I got stuff here at the church. It's backing up. I got issues that, you know, Kim and I are dealing with. We're fine. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it just things collided this week. And I shared last night that I fought for every ounce of joy that I had this week in the middle of doing a series on joy. And I can tell you this week that the times that I didn't have joy, and there were too many of them, were because I had not drawn close to God. And that if I had chosen to draw close to him, joy could have been mine. I believe that with every fiber in my being. Nehemiah 8.10 is your proof text here. Nehemiah is is just having Israel rebuild the wall after the desecration of Israel and the temple. And they're rebuilding the wall. And Ezra had found the law that they hadn't read in over 100 years. And Ezra reads the law. And they're all weeping and lamenting because they had so messed up their spiritual lives in their city, Israel. And Nehemiah is saying, hey, we're building the wall right now, so just chill out. Let's celebrate what God is doing here because God is on the rise again. And look at what he says. It says, then Nehemiah said to them, Israel, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. Now watch this. 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We've made that phrase into a trite little song we sing for our kids. You remember that song, Tracy? The joy of the Lord is our strength, that song. And part of the problem when we make a phrase like this into a trite little song, it's a great little song, but the problem is, is that we sometimes lose the rigor that are in these words. Let's take it backwards. If you have no strength in your life, it's because you have no joy. And if you have no joy, it's because you're not tied to the Lord. That's exactly what this passage is saying here. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you have no strength, it's because you have no joy. If you have no joy, it's because you're not tied to the Lord. And if you're not tied to the Lord, <laughs> don't blame him. Somebody once said to me years ago, this was so profound, I wrote it in my first Bible. They said, if God feels farther away, who moved? That settled it for me. Because even this week, as I lacked joy and dealt with anger and all the other things I dealt with this week, you know what I never once did, and I consider this a victory, I never once blamed God for that because it's not his fault. If I lack joy, it's because I am not choosing to place my life in the lane that God wants me to, his lane, where I can draw close to him and tap into the joy that he has for me. And so don't ever kid yourself, gang. One of the reasons that Christians today, and it's really indicting, lack joy is because they just aren't close to God. They go to church, they tithe 10% on the gross, they do their service commitments, they join a small group, all good things to do, and they aren't close to God. And the reason is, is because if they were, they'd smile more. If they were, they'd have joy. And I have great hope for Scottsdale Bible Church. Let's review what we have learned in this series. It's not rocket science, but it works. And that is that joy truly can be ours. God has reserved joy for you and me. And the reason that many of us don't have joy is because we don't know how important it is. We don't know what joy is, this feeling of longing and desire built upon hope. Uh, we don't know what hope is, and we haven't anchored our lives in hope. And we're not close enough to God. So let's make a commitment as a church right now. Cactus Venue and Chapel, let's make this commitment. Let's make a commitment to be people who know the importance of joy, who know what joy is as distinct from happiness, who, who know what it is to anchor our lives in the powerful hope that God gives us, lifting our sights to the horizon where he can be found and then draw close to him. You do those things and you can. You're going to get more of a smile on your face. You're going to have more joy and your neighbor just might describe you differently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that you give us in you. Thank you that joy is found in you. May we never, ever be duped into anything else. And God, thank you that you have each one of us here in a chapel, venue, cactus, watching online, that, that have the capacity as followers of you to tap into your joy. And God, I pray that as we become those who don't neglect this second fruit of the Holy Spirit, this thing that Jesus has reserved for us, that God, you would help us to be the kind of people known more for joy and not just all the other stuff. And I pray this in Jesus' name.